This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create a professional website, blog, portfolio, and now an online store with the new Squarespace Commerce feature. For a free trial and 10% off your first purchase on new accounts, go to squarespace.com trek and use offer code TREK3. You're listening to Trek FM. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Literary Treks, our dedicated Star Trek books and comics podcast. I'm Christopher Jones, and with me, as always, is my esteemed co-host, Matthew Rushing. Matthew, how are you doing this week? Doing pretty well, Chris. It's been um, just a pretty solid week, nothing too exciting, although today... Um, and people are probably going to get tired of me saying this, but another starship arrived on my doorstep today. Apparently, Diamond Select decided that they just needed to all come out at the same time, even though I've had them pre-ordered for like years now. Uh, so the Enterprise D is now aloft on my uh, bookshelf in my room. It looks nice. Um which I thought was very timely since, you know, we were also going to talk about onboard the Enterprise uh, by the Okudas. So, um, very fortuitous. It is funny. You keep telling me this ship arrived, this ship arrived. And, and people may get the impression, like you said, that you've, you went out and bought all these ships, but no, you've had them on order for, in some cases, two years, right? And yes. <laughs> they're just all coming out at the same time. So it's going to be kind of an expensive month for you, I guess. Yeah, it has been. It's been kind of fun though. Um, you know, they, they've done some really great work and of course we don't do a lot of collectibles here but if you are into ships i'd check those out because i'm really pleased with the work they've done so yeah i'm a little bit jealous i would love to have those sitting in the studio here with me they'd look good in your studio too with your uh tribble posters in the background and your risian posters as well absolutely all right. Well, let's jump in. You mentioned on board the Enterprise. That's the first thing we're going to talk about today in news. Uh, I received my book earlier in the week. I forget now. I think it was possibly on Monday or Tuesday. And so I have it in hand. And I have to say, I, I was impressed when I pulled it out of the package because it's a really nice hardcover book. For some reason, I wasn't expecting it to be quite as large as it is. Yes, I really do like that. It reminds me, you remember as a, um, a kid and you'd get those big, huge hardcover picture books that would tell you all about, you know, a certain thing in history. Um, it reminds me of one of those. It actually kind of reminds me of the DK books that they would do about. Yeah, you know, it's the same size as yes. the DK Visual Dictionary. And so um, and it, it's really the same quality as well. And so um, I really was pleased to see that because. Um, it makes such a nice visual representation, especially when you're going to have um, big, huge, sweeping pictures of a ship as large as the Enterprise D. And she's got some ample nacelles, if you know what I mean. <laughs> she does. 
Uh, well, speaking of the ship there, I mean, not only does the large format book lend itself well to presenting the D, but they have some beautiful fold-outs in here, like a full-length side view of the D, which you can fold out to be a four-page spread, which is just absolutely beautiful. It really is. The um, the quality of the artwork in here, the uh, CG work that they've done for uh, the ship is fantastic, and I think it really does a great job of representing what you saw on screen all those years, and now what we're seeing in HD with the remastered versions, uh, because that model yeah. was beautiful. And so, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's great stuff. And besides the ship itself, you know, I was very, very happy to see as I flipped through one of the early pages, and there's a Ferengi with his fur on. That was my favorite part right there, Chris. I mean, they're talking about, which I thought was great, um, you know, the greatest voyages of the Enterprise D, and apparently one of them was when they met the Ferengi for the first time. And my favorite part, too, is when they talk about it later on, the weapons and the tactical systems. And one of the ships that they use as one of the main villains, apparently, was the Ferengi Marauder. We all know how scary the Ferengi Marauder is. <laughs> well, it's a scary ship, you know, when they hit that button and, you know, like the Defiant had a blade of armor. That's true. Ferengi Marauders, they don't have a blade of armor. What they have is fur. You hit a button, the ship becomes covered in fur, and then they deploy the gigantic space laser whips that, that try to Ugh. slap your ship around. Man, those are the worst. I wish they had not deleted those scenes from that episode because they were so good. Hopefully, they'll put them back in the remastered version. I hope so. Because yeah. <laughs> that fur, seeing the texture of the fur on a Ferengi Marauder in HD would be fantastic, especially on my new view screen, which is going to be arriving today, my big 47-inch full HD 3D, and I can see... 3D fur. That's going to be amazing. Man, you are one lucky guy. Well, you know, also I <laughs> thought was really funny uh, and and really nice, uh, I should say, here is that they uh, also give you a little bit about each one of the crew members. Um, I really like the bit that they did about Deanna and uh, just how she's invaluable to Picard's crew. Um, being able to tell what other species are feeling and thinking because of her empathic powers yes uh a source of valuable insight in her job it says so definitely i, I did notice though there's one major oversight here and i'm really disappointed in mike and denise for missing this but uh, the little bit about Jordy here there is absolutely no mention of barrel rolls i don't know how you could miss that i mean that's probably Jordy's best feature i mean forget the visor forget that he's you know a technical wizard the guy does the best barrel roll in Starfleet. In fact, I think he actually runs that class. And so yeah. he does. Yes, yes. You have to take barrel roll classes at the Academy. <laughs> but uh, in all seriousness, this book is absolutely beautiful. If you like The Next Generation, if you like the Enterprise D, which I think the majority of fans are very fond of, you definitely want to pick this book up. It's so inexpensive. I mean, it's a retail price, eighteen ninety nine. I think on Amazon, it was probably like 11 bucks. Yeah, I maybe. think I got mine for 12. For yours? I think it was like 12. 12. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's beautiful. A lot of pullouts, a lot of these um, four-page spreads that you can pull out. 
Uh, and it has the CD with it. Now, I did not have a chance yet this week to put the CD into the computer and check out the virtual tour. Did you get to do that, Matthew? I actually did. Um, the day it came in, I pu- pulled out the CD and popped it in my computer. And uh, it really was beautiful. It's really well done. It's uh, full CG environments of many different places on the Enterprise from uh, the bridge to um, the engineering section to sick bay, places like that, 10 forward. It looks really good. You know, I, I'm fully reminded of, of the beauty of the Enterprise D and its luscious counselor office look, you know, that just feels like I'm walking into a doctor's office every time I'm in there. Uh, so it, it is pretty fantastic. Great. I'm going to have to do that this weekend. I'll finally have a chance. And I'm curious to see how it compares to the old, uh, what was it? There were two things I used to have way back in the 90s. There was a virtual tour of the Enterprise. Yes, yes. And then there was the captain's chair I also had where you could, I I think those were two different discs if I remember, but I'm curious to see how it compares to that. I think this is the book too that's perfect um, for, you know, the next generation is getting released on Blu-ray now, and uh, lots of people are showing these to their kids for the first time. This is the perfect book to be able to get them. Um, it's really done nicely, and this is the kind of thing you know. As a, I remember as a as a young boy going to the library. This is the kind of stuff I used to get out of the library, you know, about my favorite movies or TV shows or things like that. So I think this is a perfect book for that. Or you know, there are a lot of people who are becoming fans of Star Trek now. Who are just getting into the thing, something like the next generation because of JJ's Star Trek. And again, this is a perfect example of something that um, one of them might want to pick up as a reference guide just quickly. I think it would be a great gift for somebody like that as well. Yeah, and that's a good point, you know, showing it to your kids to help them get into the show. The definitely great stuff here. So I'm very impressed with this book, and I definitely encourage everyone to go out and pick it up. All right, let's move to our next story, Matthew. And this is about the shocks of adversity, which is going to be coming in May. What can you tell us about this? Well, I was really excited just to see that um, the new cover art had come out for this book. I'm very excited uh, to, to get to read this. And the cover art is really beautiful. It has a great picture of uh, the Enterprise, which is battle damaged, apparently. Yes, uh, and uh, so I'm very excited to see exactly why it would be battle damaged. Um, one of the things about this is book is this is the story where they are going to run into the Goeg Domain, which is a political union of a dozen different planets and races, a lot like the Federation. And so they're going to be exploring something that's a lot like them. Um, And so I'm very interested to see what happens in this book. I always love to see what comes out as the cover art. And recently, a lot of the cover art has been, you know, pictures of uh, crew members like Spock or something like that. And I liked that this one was just featuring the Enterprise herself again. Yeah, yeah. Well, because the Enterprise is a character in the show, I think sometimes I think people forget that, but she definitely is. Yeah, this is the story where they run into this group that, uh, like you said, the Goeg domain that seems a lot like the Federation in the beginning, right? But as they go along, they find out that, yeah, maybe they're not quite as much like us as we thought at first, I think is the basic premise here. So it sounds really interesting. 
And this will be coming out on, on May 28th. And so I'm very excited to be reading this. Go check out the link. We'll have it there so you can check out the, the beautiful cover art in full. You'll hopefully be seeing this in your iTunes enhanced version, but uh, you'll be able to see the full cover there. And it really is beautiful. I like it a lot. Yeah, it looks fantastic. Well, the next thing we had, Chris, was some amusing sample pages from How to Speak Klingon, that brand new book that's going to be coming out that's going to give us not only how to speak Klingon, but the um, the little sound clips as well on actually how to say this. And I really like this. It's pretty funny. Did you get a chance to, to look at some of those sample pages? Yeah, I, I've never had this particular reaction to food in a restaurant myself, but <laughs> I like the human here as the Klingon tries to shove a handful of gach into his mouth and the human's like, no, I yeah, can't eat I, that. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, some of the other sample pages are, are quite humorous as well. You've got Klingons, you know, what you would do when you go to the movies, um, when you're at the office, at the golf course. Um, which I really like because the uh, Klingon is breaking the club over his knee because he's so mad, which, you know, humans do that already. But I, I'd hate to think of where, you know, Klingons, uh, you know, end up putting the rest of the club once they're done. They yeah, might stab you with it. or Right. I don't want to be around a Klingon who has just, you know, shot you know, like five over par on a hole. I don't <laughs> I want to steer clear, especially if he's been having some blood wine and tonic as well, I gotta, he makes his way around the course. I got to say, the, probably the best thing not to call a Klingon playing golf and who's playing badly is a Shankopotamus, because I'm pretty sure <laughs> you are going to end up on the wrong side of either a skewered club or a batleth. Right, because those are fighting words right there. Exactly. <laughs> um I do like your how they maybe teach you to politely refuse something. Going back to the restaurant, what they're teaching you to say is, no thanks, I'm allergic to gach. So you're gonna you don't want to insult the Klingon. You want to give a valid excuse. You know, I'm allergic to this. It's like an excuse sometimes that I I might have to use here in Japan when I you know, I just want a salad without tuna fish in it. <laughs> I just want I just want vegetables, and they're so inflexible that well, you know, I get the salad has tuna fish in it. There's no way we can give it to you without it. So you, but if you tell them you're allergic to it, then they're oh okay okay okay. So it's kind of like that. Man, that's a good idea. Hmm. So apparently, Japan is full of people telling white lies at restaurants. <laughs> at least for, <laughs> foreigners doing so. <laughs> I think so. All right. Um, I don't personally know if I'm going to pick this book up myself, but for those who are interested in Klingon, this looks like it could be quite interesting. Yeah, this will be a lot of fun, I think, um, for those who do enjoy uh, the Klingons and learning their language. And this will definitely be a great way to be able to do so in, in and in really just a kind of a humorous setting and i think people really enjoy this as well and like i said it's got that built-in audio device so you can actually hear how to pronounce those klingon phrases so you know if you are at the restaurant you know exactly the pronunciation to give when you tell that klingon no i'm sorry i'm allergic it's good it has that because it's difficult to read klingon transliterated into the latin alphabet and know how you're supposed to pronounce those things you know it's 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 hard enough with some earth languages i mean my other languages are 
Russian and Japanese. And in both of those, we use different scripts from English. And if you try to write it in the Latin alphabet, you're not going to pronounce it properly. So <laughs> same here for Klingon. It's good that they give you that uh, audible reference for you to use there. Oh, you, the other thing you could do, if I think about it, you could take this book with you to the Klingon restaurant and just hit the button on the book and, and let the let, let your waiter or your dinner companion Chris, just you're forgetting speak for you. That the universal translator would be recognized. It has to be real. <laughs> That's true. So you can't, you can't, you can't do that. So you can pull out the book and use that, but you can't use the universal translator. They'll recognize it. And you know how much that makes Klingons angry. Right, right. Because the universal translator being recognized is a problem, but you speaking really, really bad Klingon as you flip through a gigantic dictionary aboard Much more acceptable. Exactly. Much more acceptable. Especially when you are a Starfleet communications officer with a couple of decades of experience. But no, you don't know Klingon. (laughs) Apparently, Uhura hadn't gone to uh, Hoshi's school of languages because if she had, she would have been a linguistic genius. Otherwise, she just knows how to answer the phone. You know, I get... I get creatively what Nick Meyer was going for there, you know, in having the the tangible, the dictionaries and all. But it didn't make any sense. Of course, Uhura speaks Klingon. Give me a break. And she probably speaks perfect Klingon. Yeah. Why isn't a starship loaded up with a Klingon dictionary anyway? I mean, if I can pull one up on my iPad, why can't Uhura pull one up? She's like, hold on, let me get to the app store. (laughs) (laughs) There's an app for that. Exactly. (laughs) We got to trick the Klingons. There's an app for that. (laughs) We have have what, you know, 300 odd people on this ship. Nobody speaks Klingon. (laughs) Oh, goodness. All right. All right. Well, let's go on. We'll put a link to this if you want to check it out. Um, Matthew, comic news. We've been waiting. I feel like we're still kind of in this delay cycle with IDW. I had thought, and I was wrong, and I apologize to anyone who listened to the Ready Room, but I had said that uh, Countdown to Darkness 3 and Ongoing 19 were going to be out this week. Um, They are supposed to be out next week, but I have been scouring all over Comicology's pull list site to see when... 19 is coming out it's not actually on there strangely enough i found 20 in april but i have not seen 19 i contacted them today and they said that it should be out next week but to check um the blog on monday to be sure and so hopefully that as well as countdown into darkness will be coming out and so um yeah it's been kind of strange and then ongoing four was supposed to come out today and you can get it from things from another world. At least it says it's in stock. But if you go to Amazon, it's not. So I'm not really sure exactly what's happened. But these are things that are going to be available. And Amazon had said that ongoing number four, volume four, uh, will be out on the 19th of March. That's their uh, release date for that. And so that's going to collect um, the Red Shirt's Tale as well as our favorite story uh, about uh, when Scotty and Keenzer first meet, which had to be the most touching story. Chris, I know that you were actually kind of welling up with tears, you were telling me, when you read that one. Yeah, 
Yeah, it was it was it was very touching. Uh, speaking of that, I mean, ongoing nineteen is the backstory of Scotty, and for a moment there, I was thinking, no, we already got that, didn't we? And then I remembered that no, that was actually the Keenzer backstory, which did have an appearance by Scotty. So that's right. Yeah. Well, and you know, because Keenzer's background is more important than Scotty's. Um, you know, Keenzer he came first, right? He's the real brains behind that outfit, anyway. So. <laughs> Keenzer is the brain. Keenzer is the real miracle worker. <laughs> exactly. I mean, uh, everybody thinks you know it's, it's kind of like Pinky and the Brain. Uh, well, Keenzer's the brain. So <laughs> there's going to be that future J.J. Abrams movie where Kirk asks Scotty, "Have you always multiplied your repair estimates by a factor of four? And Scotty says, "Not me, sir. Keenzer does it." Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, that that's just right for humor right there. Um, Well, then uh, going on, um, you're also going to get if you if you've been waiting for volume four, uh, you'll get the reimagining of the mirror universe, which we both enjoyed seeing. And so uh, this is actually a great volume, I think, um, because I actually really enjoyed the red shirts tale. I thought it was a lot of fun to kind of see Star Trek from the quote-unquote red shirt. And so uh, this is good stuff. Great. All right. Well, that's where we stand on comics. So hopefully for next week's show, we will be able to bring you a little bit more comic talk. Now, Matthew, let's take a quick moment before we jump into our feature and welcome aboard our sponsor, Squarespace. Now, Squarespace is a big sponsor of Trek FM in general, Listeners of the Ready Room of Decade of Trek News and Views are already familiar with our sponsor, Squarespace, but we would like to welcome them aboard Literary Treks. Now, Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create professional websites, blogs, and portfolios. And I've been using Squarespace personally for five years now, maybe even going on six it's it's absolutely amazing. I couldn't do my work without it. A Trek FM wouldn't exist without it, honestly, uh, because it makes it so easy for us to build the site and bring all of this content to you so we could focus on talking about Star Trek instead of, you know, coding our website all the time. And uh, it's just an amazing, fast and easy platform to use. You know, Chris, one of the things that I really like about Squarespace is that it has over 300 fonts you can choose from when you're setting up your website. And for me, I don't know what it is, but I'm just really a font guy. Um, I will spend, if I'm doing something on Photoshop or on my own website I have, um, if I'm doing that, I will spend hours looking for the right fonts because to me it really sets the tone of the website. And I really appreciate that Squarespace gives you over 300 to choose from so you can pick that perfect font to really set the tone when people see your header on your uh, Squarespace website, it, it'll just fit exactly what you want. So I'm really pleased uh, that they've done things like that to really uh, make this as customizable as possible for you. Yeah, it is really important be to help you make a site that's uniquely your own. Uh, you know, a lot of people shy away from the idea of template-based sites. Uh, the, it, myself as a designer, sometimes if I talk to other designers about you know, starting off from a template, oh, a template, I can't do that. It's not custom. But actually, 
with Squarespace, the templates have hundreds of customization options. And like you said, 300 fonts built in, which is fantastic. And you can even go a step beyond that. If you're, if you're like me and you're a professional designer and you're tied into all the Adobe Creative Cloud tools as I am, and you have Typekit, Squarespace also has Typekit integration. So you can enter your Typekit code into your Squarespace site and then you can go to Typekit and you can create all, all of your font sets there like you normally would. And you can use those in addition to the 300 fonts that are built into Squarespace. So really, you know, if you are a typophile, if you love great typography, you will not find any platform that gives you the kind of flexibility to design and, and realize your vision like you'll find with Squarespace. Well, and we definitely live in a social media world. And the other thing I think that makes Squarespace so great is that they give you the best mobile experience. Um, You can automatically pull in from Instagram for your site, uh, share pages on Facebook, auto-publish on Twitter, uh, and add the social media buttons to connect with all the different services you love, whichever those are. I mean, and there's some great ones here, uh, whether it's, you know, Dropbox, LinkedIn, Pinterest, uh, you know, any social network that you might want to use to help promote your site, they've got it set up so that you can do that. And and we know in this world, uh, if you're trying to get out there, that's the best way to do it. And Squarespace makes it so easy. Yeah, definitely. Um, Going beyond social media buttons, which of course are great, and the integration is great. On the back end of Squarespace, uh, there there is a social media section where you can connect all this and, and you just tie it right in. You put in your ID. Extremely simple. Another feature that's really cool is the ability to share pages on Facebook. So on your on your if it's a personal blog uh, or if it's a business, a larger website like Trek FM is, and you have a company page. Either way, you can actually take pages from your Squarespace site and just share them directly on Facebook. So to give you an example with Trek FM, if you go to our Facebook page and, you know, we have all these little boxes across the bottom where like if we, you you can uh, tie in your photos there, you can tie in other uh, bits of information that you want to share beneath the timeline header. Uh, If you click on that, there's actually one that says share a Squarespace page. And you can choose a page, you can designate a page from your Squarespace site that will be shared on Facebook. And that's a kind of integration that I have not found anywhere else. And it makes self-promotion incredibly simple and effective. Squarespace really just is, I think, Chris, the place to go. Um, you know, like you said, whether you're a professional and trying to uh, increase your business online through a very good looking website. I mean, Trek FM is a great example of what Squarespace can offer or just looking for a personal blog, a place to share your thoughts, but you actually want it to look um, professional. You want it to look good. You want it to look like you spent hours doing it, but don't necessarily have hours to put into it. Squarespace is the place for you. Definitely so. And the one other feature that they just added recently, which we should mention, is the commerce feature. Because if you're building a business website, there's a good chance that you may want to sell products on there. But even if you're an individual, you may want to sell products. Um, you know, for example, our friend Kate, who does, you know, crochet Starfleet officers and other animals and all, she may want to sell those on her blog. And using the commerce feature, she could be up and running in just a matter of minutes because they tie together with Stripe. 
to allow you to process orders, uh, take credit card payments right from your website. Um, I, I've, I've set up commerce on websites before. It can be quite cumbersome and quite difficult to do. Uh, Squarespace makes it very, very simple with their new commerce feature. And it, it integrates right into the template. You can sell physical uh, products. You can sell digital goods. You can offer coupon codes as well. Uh, it can handle uh, collecting the information for the shipping. It's really a fantastic platform. And and it's really inexpensive. So let's tell everyone about the pricing real quick. If you want this full-blown commerce feature, that's just $24 per month, which is already very inexpensive because you're getting hosting, the best, most stable hosting that you'll find, and you're getting the CMS. Below that, you can get the unlimited package minus the commerce features for just $16 per month, or you can get for $8 a month, the regular package, which probably gives most people everything they want. So we'd like to invite you to go try it out. You can go to squarespace.com slash trek and use offer code trek3 for March. That's offer code trek3. And you can get 10% off your lifetime purchase at Squarespace. But you don't have to pay up front. You just go sign up. You get a 14-day free trial. They don't even ask you for a credit card. You get access to all the tools in Squarespace. And uh, you can build out your site. You can even import your site from WordPress or other blogging platforms. You'll see exactly what it looks like. And then after 14 days, if you love it, and we know you will, you just sign up. Use offer code TREK3, and you'll be supporting our sponsor and helping us bring all this programming to you at the same time. A few weeks ago, we talked about Avatar Part 1, Chris, and we had a really good time getting into the beginning of the relaunch of Deep Space Nine. Uh, That book left us with a huge cliffhanger. Um, The Federation may be going to the war with the Dominion again. Uh, A brand new text had just come to light with the Bajorans on whether or not everything that they have believed in the prophets may or may not be wrong. A new orb has been found by Vaughn and the Enterprise, and they are hurrying their way back to Deep Space Nine to give it to the Bajoran people, and an attack has happened on the station and left it crippled. All of this has happened, and we are left with this, and so now we're back with book two uh, to finish the story of Avatar. Chris, one of the first things I just wanted to ask you was, Okay, we read book one. We both enjoyed it, although I think you had said that you found it. It was okay, but you you knew you liked book better. After rereading book two, what are your feelings on it? I think book one, well, book one reminded me of what you often get on Star Trek television episodes where you have a part one and part two, where naturally part one is, is the setup, part two is the resolution. I mean, that's obvious, but I mean, there there are those times where the first part of a story is more engaging, and then the the latter part you feel like they had to find a way to wrap it up, and so it didn't quite work as well for you. This one is kind of the flip side, where you know I get that book one is the setup; it's not quite as it doesn't get me quite as excited, but then the second part of Avatar is where I feel like they really, really dig down and they pull that core of Deep Space Nine out and they tie everything together and it gets you so excited about where this is going. I mean, the moment that I finished this book, I immediately bought 
the next book, Abyss, because I want to keep going and find out what's happening in the relaunch. And again, I've actually read these books in the past, but I had them in paperbacks, and I'm, I'm buying them on my Kindle so I can reread them all again. The, the, all the threads, the things I really, really love about Deep Space Nine and the depth really came through in the second book. Yeah, I agree. Um, what I think that made this so good is that I actually appreciated book one more after reading this because of how well yeah, that S.D. Perry had set up what was going to happen in this book. Yeah. And the other thing that I really enjoy about both of these books is that the pacing is very quick. It feels like I'm watching an episode um, yeah, and mm. I think that that's one of the things that really captivated the audience back when these books first came out because it felt like I was immediately back at Deep Space Nine as if, you know, three months had passed and here I am again. I'm on the same station. These are the same characters that I know with some new ones added in. And I think that's what really made this work. And it goes to show one, the writing, but two, the editing and the way that the editors had, I think, brought life to this series and we're going to kind of shepherd it through. Yeah, yeah. It was written very well that way. And I think she did a great job of capturing the voices of the characters as well, because you said you felt like you were in the television show. And it's how I felt too, is I read through very quickly through scenes and I just, but I keep the dialogue and the characters' voices in my head. It really did feel like these are the characters. This stuff could have been written by Ira. It sounds spot on. So great job by Perry. Yeah, it is really good. And uh, I really appreciate that because, you know, as we talk about on the orb, D Space Nine is, is my first love when it comes to Star Trek. And I really appreciate being able to dive into these books. And it reminds me of what David R. George III had said when he was on the fact that you, as a reader, he loves reading this series. You know, he's written in it, but he also really enjoys reading it because he just loves these characters. And it really is a great story. And it continues the lineage of Deep Space Nine by continuing to tell very complex, meaningful, character-driven stories. And um, I yeah. like that this one really does a good job of of kind of giving us some more character depth. So one of the things that kind of really jumped out to me at the beginning was we start with D Dominion. Uh, we start with Odo, and this is the first time we've seen Odo uh, since this relaunch has happened. And you see the Link kind of in, in really a kerfuffle, you might say. They're, they're just not sure what to do with themselves right now. You know, Odo has returned, Loss has returned, but... It hasn't really helped them the way they thought. You know, they sent that 100 out. They come back. They tell them all their experiences. And it's not really making much of a difference. Um, and I thought that that was kind of a very interesting thing to see them dealing with. You know, um, they wanted to learn about solids. Now they're learning about them, but they're not willing to take what they have learned and actually do anything with it. Right. Well, they have this internal debate going too. And, and I like that they reference back to Lus. So it, it, it's again a case like you would have on the TV series of Deep Space Nine, making sure that it maintains its continuity and it actually utilizes even minor characters who are introduced in earlier episodes. And so you have these two with Odo and Lus, you have these kind of two outside voices 
coming in because so much of what's going on in the Dominion here is this debate about the status quo and and charting new territory and you know the whole point of Odo being sent out in the first place as part of that 100 was that the Great Link wanted to learn more about the solids and more about the larger universe. Well, they learned about it, but they've been very unwilling to accept the new information that they received. They remained very distrustful of the solids. And this is a huge challenge that Odo is now undertaking. Well, one of the things that I noticed too is that the Dominion and the Bajorans are going to be facing very similar problems here. And it's one of of dogma. The Dominion has been doing things for such a long time the same way that it's very reluctant to change or to see anything new. The Dominion's been around for thousands of years now. They've had a way of doing things um, for at least a thousand years because they realized that, uh, you know, solids really don't trust shapeshifters. And so they've been very isolationist, very protectionist, and they're not really willing to change that now, even with what Odo has told them. And I think that that's very interesting because they're being faced with something that they don't really know how to use or understand, and they're afraid of it, and their fear is really driving them now. The Dominion aspect here, or the Great Link aspect, is an interesting parallel to our own world and how we come to terms with events of the past and try to chart a new future of more peaceful coexistence. It it reminds me personally, on a personal level, you know, I live in Japan. I've lived almost my whole life in Japan. My wife is Japanese. And, you know, how long has it been now? 70 years ago, we fought a war against one another. And what I found interesting growing up when I was younger, when my wife and I first started dating, is that, you know, a lot of my family members fought in World War II. And for me, it's very easy to see the world differently. And that's in my past. And okay, you know, relationships change, both between people and, and between cultures. And it's easy for me to to let that go and move forward. But for some of my older family members, it was a very difficult idea for them, I think. And I think that's what we see here with the Dominion, that, uh, you know, the Dominion here, the Great Link, thinks that the Alpha Quadrant powers are just waiting to pounce on them again. Like the next opportunity they have, they're going to take advantage and they're going to attack. Whereas that's not what the Alpha Quadrant powers are thinking. And then on the flip side, you know, the Alpha Quadrant powers, they're on guard as well because they think the Dominion is just there, you know, ready to come after them again, which is not helped at all by what the attack we saw in the first book, uh, which, you know, turns out to be a rogue venture. Uh, but but Odo's trying to convince them that, hey, you don't have to worry about that. But it's not an idea that they're really willing to accept. Well, on top of that, and I liked that you um, really brought this out as well, is that uh, the link really views the Federation's attempt to destroy them with a disease as having crossed the line that Dominion hadn't. And um, I think that that's interesting because, you know, you remember at the end of the war, the female changeling says 
to wipe out all the Cardassians. Right. And so I think that they have some blinders on. Um, they're not remembering all of their actions. And the fact that they are really willing to wipe out anyone that stands in their way in any way, shape, and form, they don't care about solids at all. And so um, their complete disregard for solids, uh, I think they have some selective memory loss. <laughs> right. Well, I, I mean, I think certainly you can look at biological warfare as crossing a line that, that cannot be crossed in a conflict. And they can look at it in that respect and say, well, yeah, okay, we're going to kill everybody, but we're going to do it by just, you know, stabbing them. We're not going to, or bombing them. We're not going to try to actually give them a disease. But but, but they have genetically manipulated the Jem'Hadar to be warriors. Uh, they're using biological and genetic manipulation that way. And let's not forget the quickening as well on Deep Space Nine, where the Dominion actually had infected uh, an entire world with a disease. Yeah, and so they are definitely not above using all of those. I mean, they do the same thing to the Devorta. They genetically enhance or de-enhance them as well, giving them what they think they need. So, you know, they have excellent uh, hearing, but they don't have great eyes, you know, uh, all of those funny things we learn from uh, Wei Yun. So I just think it's very interesting the way that uh, as a society, we're willing to put blinders on. And I think that that's uh, something that I just kind of picked up on is really the Dominion is very selective in how it looks at, at itself. Right, which which is natural. I think all societies are like that. So if we parallel this to our own world right now, you know, any country you go to, there is going to be some level of that kind of selective. It's, you know, people have a double standard in how they see themselves and how they see uh, other races or other cultures. So it is very natural. On the other hand here, so, so this is a, a secular problem that the Dominion has as far as I see it. The Bajorans, however, it's not really a secular problem it is a religious problem which they are facing here that brings up the same type of social challenges that we're seeing in the dominion uh now matthew you are a man of great faith what did you see in what kira well this book first of all that came to light and then how kira handled the situation how it affects the bajorans and i thought it was really interesting um I see a, a lot of parallels in what you might think of as, um, you know, that you had the whole idea a few years ago with the Da Vinci Code and whether or not that was true or not, whether or not Jesus had been actually married and this huge thing had been covered over and everything that Christians believed about Jesus was just a lie. Um, it also reminded me honestly from scripture itself when jesus comes on the scene the jewish leaders don't like him very much at all in fact they reject him uh, because he's not what they thought he would be as you know a savior messiah figure they were expecting something different and so this is something that uh what happens in this book with what comes to light for the bajoran people is something that's happened to a lot of religions uh, around the world from time to time and the way that the Vedic assembly handles this is, is pretty horribly, actually. 
Um, they are willing to do whatever it takes to um, keep these secret, um, to make sure that these heresies, as they would call them, uh, stay hidden. And I thought that was really interesting because to me, as a person of faith, if your faith can't be challenged, if uh, you don't um, give any room to having discourse with people who don't believe, um, don't think the same way that you do, uh, and you're so afraid that your faith might crumble, then I, I think you might just have some really bad faith. You might be putting it in some things that just obviously shouldn't be had by anyone. And so um, what I really liked is the way that Kira does end up dealing with this. She says, look, the Bajoran people are strong enough to handle this book. They're strong enough to have their faith questioned. Why? Because Kira believes in the prophets. She believes that they care about Bajor. She care. She believes they want what's best for Bajor. And she believes that this will do nothing but strengthen Bajor and its faith. And that's exactly what I would say. I think that that's what I would um, have wanted. Um, I, I don't have any problem with anybody personally questioning what I believe or my faith. Uh, because I, I personally believe it only makes me have to rethink and make sure that what I'm putting my faith in is something worth having faith in in the first place. Um, and if it's not, then, well, then maybe I shouldn't have faith in it at all. And so the only way to sometimes grow is to have something challenged in your life by difficulty, by struggle. Um, and a lot of times that's intellectual and sometimes it's personal experience, but all of those things come together, I think, to really help us grow and change and make sure that what we are believing in our life is actually something worth believing in. And uh, I thought that this was a huge issue. It's obviously happened many times over the years that this world has been in existence for people of faith and even people not of faith. I mean, even if you don't believe in a God, there are still things that you believe in that are constantly being challenged and um, having to be reworked in your life. And so this is something that even those who might not believe in a higher power still have to do with the beliefs they have, you know, whether it's in the things of science that change when new things come to light and all of that. All of these ramifications come, in, uh, I think, into fruition here. And I, I think this is something that is a really good challenge for those who believe in anything. And we all believe in something. Yeah. Well, your mention of science there is interesting too, because, you know, there's some debate here just recently about the speed of light and whether any particles can travel faster than the speed of light. And there are some scientists who say there's some evidence that, yes, there may be something that we discovered that can. And then there are others who say, well, no, no, of course it can. I mean, we all know nothing can travel faster than the speed of light. So even within the scientific community, there is that kind of uh, tug of war between holding on to old ideals and being willing to accept new evidence, uh, even within the framework of a way of seeing the world being science, which is all about constantly trying to disprove what we already believe in order to learn more. Uh, but taking it back to the Bajorans here, um, what you're saying I think is important is that it's about having a thought process behind it. It's about uh, growth. And it's one thing I always appreciated about Kira that, as we've talked about 
on the orb, how she's very steadfast in her faith, but I always feel that she she has her own connection with the prophets and her own spirituality, and she's not beholden simply to the book. You know, if you if you think about Christianity being the Bible, she's not simply beholden to what's written on the page and a literal translation of that. You know, she actually has her own evolving identity and and relationship with the prophets. And here we see that difference between Vedic Yaver, who thinks that if any new information comes to light, it's going to throw the society into chaos. There's that kind of blind adherence to what's been established and what the Vedic assembly has agreed upon or approved as being legitimate texts from the prophets. Verse, they, they, they talk about many, many, many more texts that have come to light over the years that have been uh, deemed to be not of the prophets or be heretical or by the Vedic assembly. And, and here is Kira saying that, look, just because the Vedic assembly thinks that this book is false doesn't mean that it's not and doesn't mean that it doesn't have value and everyone should be able to choose for themselves. And this actually reminded me of the controversy that sprung up, uh, I believe it was back, I remember it being a big deal back in the 90s, but about the Dead Sea Scrolls and their place within Christian texts and within the Bible. And that's just what I thought of as I was reading about all of these other Bajoran texts that had been reviewed by the Vedic Assembly over the years, and they had kind of placed them into categories of, yes, these texts are the official word of the prophets, and these texts are written by crazy men. Could they actually refer to that in here at one point? Did, did that remind you of that as well? It did bring to light some of those ideas. Uh, what I thought of more was like, um, you know, the book of Thomas, uh, which, mm-hmm. you know, is the reference you get in the Da Vinci Code, um, the the Gnostic Gospels, those kind of things. That's really what I was uh, thinking of more. Uh, this avatar comes out at around the same kind of time that uh, that kind of thing was really big. And uh, as if, you know, Christianity had been hiding this secret for years when people have known about this stuff for a really long time. We just discounted it because it's, you know, it can be proven false. So, um, and, and not in the way that the Vedic assembly did, you know, nobody was trying to hide it. You know, they just, we, you you can read plenty of books to, uh, and, and scholarly literature to discount this. Um, and so I thought that that was really interesting in the way that they have handled it here. The Bajorans have that they've just cut it down and and uh, said no nobody should read this and i just definitely right. think that that's completely the wrong way to go about this and well, um, well isn't I, that when as a society you really then think that yes they are hiding something from us exactly um you know and i think again if your faith or what you believe in can't be challenged then you don't have faith in something that should be strong enough to have your faith in the first place. And uh, so make sure that whatever it is that you're believing in your life is strong enough to withhold your belief. And, you know, I really liked what this book does for Kira because it shows that her allegiance is to the prophets 
And it really sets her on a course for the further development that we're going to see for her, uh, especially quite uh, quite a lot later in the relaunch series for Deep Space Nine. And in fact, the ultimate change that you're going to see in David R. George III's latest books for Deep Space Nine really, I think, stem from some of the things you see here with Kira's relationship with the prophets and her relationship uh, with her people of Bajor and, and just how she's feeling about all of that, I think, uh, really come from here. And I think that's really cool, getting to reread this now, seeing the implications later. Uh, good writing for the Deep Space Nine relaunched writers. Yeah. Well, so Kira here is obviously a woman of faith. Now, how does all this impact Cassidy, who is a human who, although she's married to the emissary of the prophets and she's carrying what I, I think we all have to believe is some sort of very special child, whether she wants to admit it or not. But she really kind of freaks out about this whole prophecy and about the 10,000 Bajorans who must die for her baby to be born. Yeah, I thought this was just a really interesting idea that, you know, this is not what uh, Cassidy signed up for. She married a man, she loves him, but she didn't sign up for being a religious icon or to have her child be a religious icon. And um, just a scary thought, I think. And I liked the way that um, Kira was able to see things from Cassidy's point of view, how Bajor just keeps taking things from her. Um, You know, took her husband and now possibly her child. And I, I really appreciated that Kira was able to have the mindset to be able to see exactly what uh, this place is doing to her. Um, And I thought that was really good. Yeah. What did you think about Cassidy in these books? Now, Cassidy's a character who I was never crazy about on the show. You know, um, I think her role in this is small enough so that I feel like it's just like the show. Um, I don't feel Mm -hmm. like in any way that she's kind of overpowering anything. Um, I, I think she was used effectively. And I like that they gave her something to do, and and especially in this story, because, of course, she is pregnant with Benjamin's daughter, and she wouldn't just disappear. And uh, I, I liked that they gave her a little bit of, of a growth period here. And she, like right. Jake, is again left because cisco has gone. And I don't think you can't not do something with her as a character there. Right. Well, and what they did with her here is very important to the story. I mean, the whole crux of everything that's going on, really, at least from the Bajoran standpoint, is about the birth of this baby avatar. So uh, Cassidy's decisions here really have a major impact on the entire future of the Bajoran faith. And I think that's overwhelming for her as a human woman to to think. And I think she kind of wants to dismiss it. You know, she thinks she can just run away to earth and it'll all be over. But, um, you know, Benjamin Sisko was born on earth. He ended up back at Bajor. It's, it's not that, it's not that simple. She's caught up in, in, in something that's much bigger than she is. Well, and as we remember, 
Benjamin goes back to Earth when he kind of has lost yeah. his connection with the prophets, and Bajor still follows him <laughs> right. um, in the uh, in the way of a knife from a crazy person. So, yeah. um, it, you know, the galaxy is small enough that people could follow you, and so um, I, I liked the end of the of the story here, uh, at least on Cassidy's side, and partly because obviously it plays out. You know, Kira has the vision with the orb and she's able to see um, what this prophecy actually meant and that the 10,000 have already died and they have been dying for a very long time because it's the people protecting this book and this prophecy. And so right. I, I liked the way, too, that the prophecies for Bajor, you always think they're going to be one thing, but like almost all prophecies, they end up being another and right. um being done in a in a way that we completely don't expect, and what I like about that is that it's very true. Um, you know, when it comes to this kind of thing, uh, it usually doesn't happen the way that we expect it would. And I think S. D. Perry did a great job of writing this because all the way up until the end, you you really do believe that that prophecy has something to do with the deaths of people right now. And even as the station is in grave danger towards the end, you really do feel that maybe this is the prophecy. And then to flip it around and have it play out as being a prophecy, uh, these 10,000 deaths that unfolded over a great long period of time, uh, and tying that back to Bahala was, it's the kind of twist that you expect from Deep Space Nine, and it showed the depth of uh, the core of DS9 and the Bajoran religion quite well. Right. And I think one of the things that I've always liked about Deep Space Nine is that when it kind of dives into the prophets and this kind of thing, it always gives it such a sense of depth. You know, it reminds me of uh, just kind of like when Indiana Jones goes after something and there's always this kind of immense depth behind it. I always feel that about... Um, Bajor and the prophets and all of this it just feels real and I really like that and that you are always thrown for a loop um, you're gonna you're meant to think one thing but it, you know it's going to be something else because it's never just the obvious when it comes to the prophets and I'll you know for me it's a lot like that with God you, it's never just the obvious you know and so I, I really like that did you feel, I felt, going back to something you said earlier on, that uh, you you appreciated the first book more after reading the second book. And I felt like we got a payoff. You know, for reading through the first book, I felt like we got a payoff in the second book. And do you feel like, I, I don't know if this is exactly how I feel, but towards the end of the second book, I almost feel like S.T. Perry took the complexity of DS9 and the religious and spiritual elements of it and kind of elevated it to another level beyond what the television show did and made it even more intricate. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, I, I think she really took what they had done on the show and what they had really built to, especially by the end, you know, by what you leave behind, and she just ramped that up um, and gave it a whole new feel to it because it was it's it's very real world here because we've seen these kind of things happen before and yeah, so I it really does feel appreciate very real world 
Uh, yeah. And I really appreciated that because that's really what Deep Space Nine did. And, 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 you know, as we talked about on the orb, uh, when we talked about uh, Cisco as emissary, there are a lot of uh, real world connections, like who he is as as emissary through religions of today, specifically, you know, when we talked about him being kind of a Moses for his people, you know, that that was actually their um, their point, you know, uh, Iris Stephen Bear said he even looked at Cisco as being kind of a Moses type figure on, on purpose. And so, yeah, right. I, I really yeah. like the way that this all works together. And I think um, S.D. Perry is, is really clued in to what the writers of Deep Space Nine were trying to do. Uh, and it's a perfect uh, it's the perfect start to a brand new season of Deep Space Nine. Yeah, it is. Okay, well, we talked about Kira a lot. One thing that we were kind of, I think, both not completely thrilled with in the first book, uh, and maybe we disagreed a little bit on as well, is the whole relationship between Esri Dax and Julian. Now, reading what happened in the second book, I felt that it was a little bit better this time. I I thought they were very childish, what was going on in the first book. Uh, as Esri makes her decision to go into the command track, I feel like at least she... Per- well, she makes that decision, and then Julian almost dies. And after these events take place, I feel like both of them became a little bit more mature in how they're interacting with one another. I think so. I think one of the things that I liked uh, and what maybe appreciate book one is that yes, I think they're supposed to be seen as being childish in that first book and and, uh, both being really selfish. And I think that the events help them see, not in like a PTSD way where we're going to make rash decisions, but it just helps focus them on what's really important. And that, you know, Dax specifically realizing that she's willing to say, look, I don't know exactly who I am now, but who I am as Esri and Dax together is in love with Julian. And what that means is that I'm willing to sacrifice a little bit of myself to grow with him. And what I really liked on the other side is that Julian was able to say, look, I'd I'd rather, you know, give you up and let you find out who you are because I love you and I want what's best for you. And on both sides, these two people really are saying, look, I want to love you unselfishly. Uh, and that brings them back together. And I really like that because, you know, that's the mark of a, a, a good relationship, one that I think would actually last and or at least be worth being in for quite a while. And um, that's a much more adult way of handling things. Right. It's more the relationship I would expect between two people like Julian Bashir and Esri Dax than what we got in the first book. So when you take the two books together, then maybe you can see the purpose of the writing in the first book to set up this change in the relationship in the second book. When you read the first book standalone, you're kind of left feeling like, yeah, this is really not realistic. Well, one of the other things too that uh, we had talked about before a little bit was just kind of Vaughn and his character's kind of renewal um, and what I really liked was the way that Vaughn kind of is the Cisco in this story. You know, he's a man who's kind of disenfranchised, he's disillusioned, and then he has an orb experience. 
and it brings him to Deep Space Nine, and he's happy to be there. He feels like he's home. What did you think about him, Chris, and just kind of his journey over these last two books? Well, I I don't know if I have a really good feel for Vine at this point, you know, as a person, other than what you mentioned right there. Uh, he, he does play very much that Cisco role in the story and in coming to the station, uh, although Cisco is a much younger man, whereas Vaughn is a much older. How was he's what a hundred and one? Is that right? A hundred and one looks pretty good yeah. for a hundred one too. He does. I hope I look that good when I'm a hundred and one. If I <laughs> never going to make it that far. Um, I also like you know he represents that connection back to Curzon Dax as well. He knew Curzon Dax, so you you've got that angle, um, and he represents. A new way of thinking. I, he fits very well into this DS9 story. We talked about the Dominion at the beginning of the discussion. And, you know, he's someone who brings an all new take on the Dominion and the Jim Hadar to the view that uh, will be portrayed from the station, the position that will be taken, and the way the Federation is going to start looking at how they might handle the Dominion. Yeah, he's a great character. I loved to just kind of seeing um, a really different type of Starfleet character as well. One who, you know, he's not a captain. He's not an admiral. He's not any of these things. He's a commander. And yet, you know, admirals almost want to salute to him. And, and you yeah. know, Picard has such reverence for him. And uh, he's this guy who's kind of done everything. He's He's really a jack of all trades that everybody looks up to. And I really liked that. But one of the things I noticed that I really appreciate about this book is that there's that point where Vaughn has the idea of how to track the Jem'Hadar, but he has no idea how to do it technically. I liked for one of the first times I've ever seen it in Star Trek, a character doesn't know how to do everything. So he has to ask for technical help. I was like, finally, I could actually be in Starfleet. I could be a smart person and still not know how to do everything on a tricorder like this. Right. Yeah, because <laughs> usually everyone knows how to do everything, right? So you, you could just see Vaughn going over to the panel and he's like, wait a minute. Now, which button do I press? Is it the green one or the yellow Exactly. One? <laughs> <laughs> like, this is why you're still a commander and you're a hundred and one. <laughs> But yeah, I, I did like that. And and also, again, very appropriate for Deep Space Nine. You know, he is a person who has had a very long life and he's reached a point where he's kind of disillusioned with the the everyday thing that he's doing and he feels like there must be something else. And then he has this orb vision and it changes him. And he's ready at that age to start down a new path and in this case, he's going to be exploring, I think, the new spirituality that the Orb Vision opened up for him. But it's in a very different way than, say, someone like Kira explores that spirituality. Well, the last uh, character that I really liked seeing here and his connection with somebody who's now in Deep Space Nine was Picard. And... I loved the fact that when Roe realizes that Picard is on the station, she has a WTF moment, and she is yeah. really not happy that he is around, especially 
with the way that she left things with him. And you realize this too, because she has such utter respect for Picard and she hates like everybody else does to let him down. I loved finding out from Vaughn in his thought process that he wonders if she'll ever know exactly what Picard has done for her. And the beauty of the story of how he went to bat for her and he lobbies the Federation and he lobbies Starfleet to let go of the grudge they have against her and just let everything die. Um, And he puts his reputation on the line for somebody who's not worthy of it. I thought was brilliant. Um, Really a beautiful picture of redemption um, and, uh, and forgiveness and for believing in somebody who doesn't really necessarily even believe in themselves. And I, I thought it was really beautiful that, you know, she'll never know, but he's done this for her anyway, and it's given her a whole brand new life, and it's really cool. And that closing interaction between Picard and Ro, I think was important for Ro. Uh, that and also her interaction with Kira at the end, that we can then finally, uh, Ro kind of, she shed the shackles, I think, of her past a bit there, you know, learning, like you said, what Picard did for her. Uh, and then kind of having um, the, the 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 relationship with Ro and Kira here is kind of a familiar one where, you know, you have two people who kind of bump heads for a while, but then finally realize that they can work together and maybe something great can come out of that. And, and then with Picard, again, it was that case of carrying that burden of feeling that you've really, really disappointed someone uh, who you look up to for a long time. And then, and finally being forgiven by that person, maybe they forgave you a long time ago, but you didn't know, but now you know. And so that frees you up to move forward. And that's important for Ro here too. And Picard, I thought was excellent in this story. Uh, Another case of a character being written spot on. I thought he was very much Picard here. Yeah, I definitely think that uh, S.D. Perry did a fantastic job. Well, uh, Chris, uh, what are your final thoughts just on Avatar, the uh, whole story? I think it's a fantastic relaunch of Deep Space Nine. Uh, It's a great continuation of the story. It's not like a reboot where you're going in and you're like, okay, here are all my characters. I'm going to do something new with these. It's, it picks up where what you leave behind left off. And it's very, very true to Deep Space Nine. The writing is very true to the series. S.D. Perry captured the heart of Deep Space Nine, the voices of the characters. And the, you know, book two, if you read through book one and you feel kind of like, yeah, well, it's interesting, but eh, I'm not quite sure. Definitely book two gives you the payoff. It got me really excited about the entire relaunch. I wish I could say something else to add to that, but I think you really uh, said everything that I wanted (laughs) to say about. Exactly. Uh, Well, Chris, why don't you tell everybody where they can find us if they'd like to contact us uh, about the show? Yeah, well, if you want to share your thoughts with us about Avatar or Deep Space Nine or anything else we talked about, there are a lot of places you can do it. You can go to trek.fm slash contact. There's a form there if you'd like to send us more of an email type communication. You can choose to send to Literary Treks. 
If you'd like to have a deeper discussion, you can go to trek.fm slash forums. There is a section just for literary treks, and you can uh, start a thread there, join in the conversation with others, talk about this show. There's also a books section if you want to talk about Avatar or any of the other books. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm and on Twitter under username trek.fm. And we would love to hear from you. So we hope you will uh, contact us. Matthew, what if people want to find you? Well, if you'd like to find me, of course, I'm the book reviewer for Trek FM. And so um, upcoming will be my review of Tony Daniels' new book. Um, So look for that. And we'll be talking to him next week. So that's very exciting. Um, Also, of course, I'm on the orb with you where we talk uh, Deep Space Nine. So if you are enjoying the relaunch uh, conversations that we're having here with the Deep Space Nine books, then please join us for the orb. We have a great discussion about all things Deep Space Nine. And then um, I am on Twitter at MattRushing02. You can find me there. Uh, Let me know you're following me. Give me an at reply. Um, Feel free to let me know things you like about the shows, things you'd want to talk about, anything you want to talk about Star Trek-wise or anything else. I'd love to have a conversation with you. Chris, where can we find you around the interwebs? Uh, You can find me on Twitter. My username is CBrianJones. That's Brian with a Y. You can find me pretty much everywhere in social media under that username. You can also find me elsewhere here on Trek FM every week on The Ready Room, where we talk about all the Star Trek series, as well as lots of Star Trek news. It's a good mix of humor and serious discussion. So check that out, trek.fm slash TRR. And while you're checking out iTunes and the shows and all, Feel free to drop by and leave us a review for Literary Treks. We've been getting some great reviews, uh, both some star reviews and some written reviews. We love to hear from you, and that also helps other people find the show as it apparently helps it rise up in the mysterious workings of the iTunes store. (laughs) Yes. We also want to encourage you to support our sponsor, Squarespace. You can go to squarespace.com slash trek and use offer code TREK3 to get 10% off your lifetime purchase with Squarespace. Squarespace has everything you need to create an exceptional website or personal blog. Fantastic system. I promise you, you'll love it. Go check them out. It helps us bring this programming to you, and you'll be supporting our sponsor at the same time at squarespace.com TREK and use offer code TREK3. Thanks everyone for joining us. And until next time, we say live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.